Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. As of June 3rd, which was last Friday, GCA has been in existence as a public church for 21 years. GCA started as an experiment. It was a Bible study in my living room. And then it outgrew the living room. So we started looking for a place to meet more publicly. And in the early days, I kept asking myself, is this something God wants us to do? I don't ever want to be thought of as being led by my ego or my pride or any sense of self-advancement. And so I kept asking myself, is this something God would have us do? And then we were able to buy the property next door. You'll excuse me if I wander down memory lane a little bit before we get to Revelation. We will get there eventually, but, but we were able to buy the property next door, which was just beat up horse land at the moment because of the high tension wires. Nobody wanted to develop that land. It had a barn on it, and it was a mess. But we got the city to agree that we would clean up that property, and we would build on that property as long as we didn't build under the high-tension wires and only parked under the high-tension wires. They agreed to that. And so we own that piece of property. We're trying to figure out how to accomplish building on it. And then this became available right next door. When we found out that this was available, it was originally a house built by a retired general in a wheelchair who then died before he made his first payment. And GCA got it. When we first walked in and looked at kind of these high ceilings and stuff, I remember Brent saying to me, wow, he built a church and then he died. And so rather than building on the property next door, we were able to expand the property and buy this building, which we did without a real estate agent, which we did by just making a quick deal, and we bought it at a price we should never have been able to afford considering we were a little group in a living room. And yet, because we owned that property next door, we were able to leverage that in order to get a bank loan in order to buy this building, and within... A very short period, within two or three years, I don't remember exactly, we got a gift from somebody we had never met, and we paid off the building. We have been debt-free for the vast majority of our life as a church. Why do I tell you all that? Because God's hand was in it all the time. I have to tell you this story just because I like this story so much. We were trying to figure out, since we were really strapped for money by then, 
before the building was paid off in the early days, we were trying to figure out how we were going to have a parking lot over here. And then one day, I drove by the building, and there was an industrial grader and one of those cap machines and everything else sitting on the property, just sitting there. So I took my business card and said, this is private property. Give me a call. Set it on the seat of the grader. And the guy called me very apologetic and said, I'm sorry, we just needed a place to park the equipment because we're putting in sidewalks all up and down this street. We didn't know who owned the property. We didn't know. We, we didn't know. You know, we'll get that stuff off your property by tomorrow. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. No, I need a parking lot. And they said, oh, yeah, we can do that for you. So we got a parking lot graded out over here on our property because God just decided to plant an industrial grader and a cap machine out there on our property. So yet again, God was like, yes, I'm in this. And then the property getting paid off. Yes, I'm in this. Yes, Joni. I really think it's interesting that you used property that nobody wanted to buy this place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And there have been uh, periods in our life where we have thought, well, now we need to build on that property. We need to, we even met with builders and drew up a blueprint to build another building next door to expand what we have here. And, uh, and then we just didn't want to go into debt. So anyway, I said all that to say I would, in previous years, point to that kind of stuff in the establishment of GCA in order to say, see, God is for us. See, God has done these things. And I mean, we were seeing these kind of remarkable things happen on such a continuous basis that it really convinced us that, yeah, okay, God's in this. And then through the years, we knocked out every wall that could be knocked out and expanded the building as much as we could expand it to accommodate the people who would actually show up here. Through those years, we started building up an internet listening audience. And it is now a remarkably large internet listening audience. I mean, like, shockingly so. And most of what we've been able to do for 21 years is because of the kindness of people we've never met. Some of whom show up here once in a while. They plan their trips and their vacations and everything else to come to little GCA for a Sunday to come and visit us. It's a really remarkable thing. And that's the kind of stuff that I have pointed at in order to say, okay, God is in this. But I have a new standard now. I have something new I can point at and say, okay, I know now God is in this. 21 years. It's been 21 years. And in 21 years, I have never had to strap on this microphone and beg for money. I have never had to tell our internet congregation that if they didn't give to us right now, we were going to go under. And if they like this teacher, they better send some money right now. I have never had to beat you folks and say, boy, we can't even pay our bills. You better. We have always had the ability to pay our way. We have never had to go begging. We've never been hat in hand. And I am so pleased with that because the church of Jesus Christ, the church that belongs to God Almighty, is not a beggar. And I am so glad that we have never had to beg for money. My attitude was always, 
If we go broke, if we go belly up, then that's because that's what God wanted. But I'm not going to come hat in hand begging people for money. And here we are, 21 years, 21 years later. Now, speaking of which, let me say something about the GCA musicians. Tom, for most of those 21 years, has sat right here or right here playing guitar for most of 21 years. And now Jeff has joined us. And I sure do appreciate Erica being over here at the piano. Sometimes Luann sits at the piano. Steve, you know what I like so much about the musicians here at GCA? There's not a show off in the group. They're not up here performing for you. They're not up here tap dancing to entertain you. They're serving you by providing music and encouraging you to sing. And that's the way it ought to be. Just like Micah just read, we're all part of the same body. And we're all dependent on each other. And that is the way that GCA has existed for 21 years, through mutual dependence on one another. Now, I said to Tom the other day, how long have we been supporting the boys' home in India? He said, I don't know. I had to go look it up. The earliest pictures that I could find on my computer Go back to March of 2007. Now, I remember that we started supporting the boys in India when it was my birthday one year. And I said, instead of giving me something, I'm going to raise some money to send to an orphanage in India. I've gotten to know Bobby. Masalamani Garakamuku, right? I never got beyond Masalamani. (laughs) (laughs) And I had talked to him, and he had been supported by a church in Portland, Oregon. That church went under. He asked if we could help. He seemed to be an upright guy. He was willing to send receipts for any money that we sent him and that he spent. And so I said, I'd like to raise a one-time gift to send to help these boys in India. So that would have been my birthday, September 21st, 2006. And we've been sending them money every month ever since. The minimum we send in any month is $500. That's the base that GCA sends. $550. We raised it. Oh, they got a raise. And then any other money on top of the $500 that GCA gives, we have people on the internet who give to the boys in India. And so we add that to the $500 and we send that every month. Every month. You know, that means that in the last, what is that, 15, 16 years, there have been boys who have had clothes, who have had shoes, who have had food, who got an education, many of whom went on to university because GCA exists. I'm telling you, God is in this. If we have to write closed on our front door someday, that'll be because Sovereign God decided that we had served our purpose and our time was up. But not yet. We're not done yet. And as long as I have breath in my body and somebody who'll pay attention to me, I'll keep preaching the grace of our Lord Jesus. And the reason we preach the grace of God here is not just because doctrinally we happen to be Calvinists. 
The reason we preach the grace of God here is because we have experienced the grace of God. We have lived the grace of God. I mean, these haven't been easy 21 years. There have been some rocky moments in our 21 years. And you know why we're still here? Grace of God. I'll say it again. 21 years. God is good, good, good to us. We're continuing in our study of the book of Revelation. Don't turn there. In order to understand what we looked at last week, we looked at the two witnesses. And then we came across a phrase that the two witnesses were going to be killed by the beast. And John just throws that out there with no preparation, no background, doesn't tell us who the beast is, just simply says that the two witnesses are killed by the beast. Why does he do that? Why does he speak in that kind of shorthand? Obviously, it's because he thought that his reading audience would know who the beast was, not who the particular person was, but they would know what he was referring to when he used the language of the beast. Why would they know that? Because they would know the book of Daniel. So turn to the book of Daniel, and we're going to spend the vast majority of the morning in the book of Daniel so that we can understand John's language of the beast. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 2. If you know the book of Daniel at all, you'll be familiar with this story. By the way, on our website, in the archive section, we have gone verse by verse through the book of Daniel. So if you want more detail than we go into this morning, you can just go and look it up on the archive and fill in the blanks, because we're going to have to kind of rush through some of these things this morning. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And so he called all his magicians and his soothsayers, and he said, I need the interpretation of the dream I had. But in order to know that you are actually telling me the truth in the interpretation, you have to also tell me what the dream was. And so the magicians and soothsayers say to him, no king has ever demanded that ever of anyone. And he threatens to start killing people if these magicians and soothsayers cannot prove their worth by telling him what his dream was and then interpreting the dream. Daniel finds out that the king has put forward this decree Daniel says that he is going to go pray to God, and he assures the rest of the magicians and soothsayers there, and says, God will reveal it to me, don't be afraid. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, and then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him, and it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks 
and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. So then Daniel goes to Arioch, who is the one who can actually walk in front of the king and speak. He goes and tells the king, wait, before you start killing people, it turns out there's a man in your kingdom, Daniel, who can actually answer the question. He's among the Hebrew children. Nebuchadnezzar, you may recall, historically, had conquered Jerusalem, was responsible for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the first wave of deportees out of Jerusalem into Babylon were all the educated, all the high and mighty, the upper echelon of Jerusalem society. Daniel and his three friends were in that group. Daniel and his three friends were then cleaned up so that they could be presented to the king. And so now Daniel is going to go before the king and explain his dream to him. That starts in verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all crushed at the same time, and they became like chaff in the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so that's what the dream was that the king saw. But then Daniel is also going to offer us the interpretation. Because God not only revealed to him what the dream of Nebuchadnezzar was, but also offered him the interpretation. Okay, here's a basic rule of Bible interpretation. When God tells you what the interpretation is, that's the end of the arguing. When God tells you what the interpretation is of any portion of his Bible, it doesn't matter whatever opinions you have. It doesn't matter what system you're developing or defending. Once God has said the interpretation, that's the interpretation. Is that too complicated? No. Okay. Here's the interpretation. This was the dream. Now we shall tell you its interpretation before the king. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings, which was true as a Babylonian king. He ruled over other kingdoms as well. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the strength and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and he has caused you to rule over all of them. You are the head of gold. Okay, so in the dream there was a statue, and the head of the statue was of gold. Who does that head of gold represent? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. So far, so good. Verse 39. After you there will arise another kingdom... 
inferior to you, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So what do these various metals represent? Kingdoms. This is a really important point, so I'm going to drive this home. Was the kingdom of Babylon a physical, earthly, actual kingdom on earth? A factual, physical kingdom? Yes? Yes. Yeah. The next kingdom that conquered Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire. We know that from the history books. We're also going to see it in the book of Daniel. Was the Medo-Persian Empire an actual, physical, earthly kingdom? Yes. Yeah. Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece, the first king of Greece, the first prince that's going to be mentioned in the Bible is Alexander the Great. The Grecian kingdom, was that an actual physical kingdom on earth? Yes. Okay, hang on to that because you just cornered yourself. Verse 40, and there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron, it breaks into pieces, and it will crush, and it will break all these into pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. After the Grecian kingdom, we know that Rome came in. Rome so completely conquered Greece that it actually assumed its culture, even assumed its pantheon of gods and just gave them new names, exact same gods. Grecian mythology and Roman mythology are the same. Greek culture became Roman culture because the Romans were just barbarians who just, like they're described here, were like iron that just smashed and destroyed and killed. That was the way that they would go to war and how they would conquer other kingdoms. So the legs of iron are obviously Rome. But the vision didn't stop there. The vision goes on to 10 toes. The number 10 here is very important. You're going to see it crop up a couple more times in Daniel, and then it's going to come up in the book of Revelation. The 10 toes are 10 kingdoms that are part iron and part clay, partly pottery, so partly strong, partly brittle, and what you're going to learn about them is they don't get along. And then a unifier is going to rise up and unify these ten nations. That is the beast. I'll show it to you in a minute. Verse 42 and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay or pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with clay pottery." Importantly, during the time of those ten toes, Christ comes back. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, which kings? The ten that he just described. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these former kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. And inasmuch 
as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him with an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Okay, what do we know so far? What we know is the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar in particular. Then... A silver kingdom comes along. We know that that is the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the belly and sides of brass come along. We know that that is the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great in particular. Then there's legs of iron interestingly divided. Two legs, the same way that the Roman Empire was divided between the Western and the Eastern. And then... A ten-toed kingdom. That kingdom we can't find in history anywhere. And we know we don't have it in history because it is during the days of those kingdoms that Christ returns and sets up a kingdom that will never be defeated. The kingdom of Christ defeats the kingdoms of this world and of this particular area. And we'll talk about that area in just a moment. But since all of the kingdoms the Nebuchadnezzar kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian empire, because the Grecian and the Roman kingdoms were all physical earthly kingdoms. You already agreed to that. Is it safe to assume that the final kingdom that destroys all them and sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed will also be on the earth? Yes. Yeah. In fact, as we continue on here, it's inescapable that the kingdom of Christ is going to be established on the earth. By the way, why would that happen? Oh, that's right, because of the Davidic covenant that David was going to have his greater son sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the nations. The Bible's very consistent with itself. The vision Daniel sees is that there is a kingdom ultimately coming, that is the kingdom of Christ, that is going to destroy all the other kingdoms. Turn to Daniel 7 now, now that we have established these kingdoms. There are, historically speaking, seven nations that have ever conquered and ruled over Israel. And remember, the Bible is about Israel, especially the Old Testament, is about Israel. And that's why these particular kingdoms are talked about. You might say, but there were other kingdoms on the planet. Why doesn't the Bible talk about any of the eastern kingdoms or the kingdoms in China or the kingdoms in the Incas in South America? Those kingdoms don't get mentioned. It's because none of them had direct influence over Jerusalem. All of this is about kingdoms that historically ruled over God's people Israel, starting with Egypt then the Assyrian kingdom, then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then this ten-toed kingdom that we haven't seen yet. One of the hallmarks of this ten-toed kingdom is that it does rule over Israel the same way that the previous six did. Got it? Got it. Have I lost anybody? 
All of this is going to be real important background when you get to Revelation. And it's part of why John can just speak in this kind of shorthand, because he assumes you already know all this stuff we're looking at this morning. Okay, so we're in Daniel 7. Now we're going to understand the beast. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. By the way, the great sea, by Middle Eastern reckoning, would be the Mediterranean Sea. That's the sea that has the most influence over them, over their trade, over their shipping. Four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and he had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had, no surprise, ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them and three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair was like pure wool, and his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were opened. And then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which that little horde was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this one like the Son of Man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language would serve him, 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Anybody want to interpret that one for us? You don't have to because then it's interpreted for us. I'm going to say again, whatever God says the interpretation is, that's the interpretation. You don't get to argue about it. You don't get to debate about it. It says what it says, and God said it. And nobody in this room is brighter than that. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and visions in my mind kept alarming me, and I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Oh, good. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Theologians refer to this fourth beast as the nondescript beast because he's not described the way the lion or the bear or the leopard is. Instead, he's just called the beast. So I desired to know the exact meaning of this fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and then that other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. And I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three of those previous kings, and he will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. How much time is that? Three and a half years. This is all corresponding to what John is telling us in the book of Revelation. So this one, this little horn, this beast character, is going to rule the ten-nation confederacy. First, he's going to take three of them. They're going to fall almost immediately. So he apparently takes them by force. The others just agree with him and give him the power, even though they're not really cohesive with one another. But he's going to rule for three and a half years, and he's going to speak out against the Most High. That's God. And he's going to wear down the saints of the Most High. The word saints in the New Testament, hagios, in the Old Testament, holy ones, it has to do with those who God has chosen, those whom God has set aside for his own purposes. 
When Daniel was writing this, was he thinking Gentile nations and church? No. No. Therefore, when Daniel is saying this, that he's going to wear out the saints, this isn't saying he's going to wear out the church. It's saying he's going to wear out Israel, who is the focus of this entire prophecy. But the court then is going to sit in judgment, says verse 26. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey him. And at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Okay, so here's what we know now. There's a series of kingdoms, the same way that Nebuchadnezzar was the golden head. Nebuchadnezzar is also the lion. I don't know how much you know about Middle Eastern history, but that sign of the griffin is one of the most pervasive signs of the Babylonian kingdom. And in fact, ancient reliefs and drawings of the throne of Nebuchadnezzar had a griffin on either side of it, a winged lion. And then Nebuchadnezzar, according to this prophecy, is going to be defeated by a bear that's lifted up on one side. History tells us that's Medo-Persia, but eventually the Persians became stronger than the Medes, so the Medes were kind of subsumed into the Persian kingdom. That's a bear that's lifted up on one side because one side became stronger than the other. Exactly like Daniel prophesied, that's what happened in history. Have you ever heard the phrase, the handwriting on the wall? That also comes from the book of Daniel because the very night that Belshazzar decided to have a feast, he decided to throw that feast with some of the implements that had been taken out of the temple of God in Jerusalem. Those things, those implements had already been sanctified to God. They could only be used for God's exclusive use. And Belshazzar decided to use them for a Bacchanalia feast there in Babylon. The very night that he was having the feast, there was a hand that showed up, a a disconnected hand shows up and writes, many, many, take you farson. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That word, you farson, is also the root of the Persians. That very night while he was feasting, the Persians came in under the wall. Through a bit of military brilliance, one of the things that made it really difficult to conquer Babylon is that it was a completely walled city, and once they closed the gates, there was no way to get in. But they had a water supply, which the Persians dammed up so that they could go down into the bed of the river that was feeding Babylon and come up the other side. Meanwhile, Belshazzar's having a drunken party while his city is falling the very night that a hand is writing, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Exactly like Daniel predicted is the point. Babylon fell to Medo-Persia. The Medo-Persians fell to Greece. One of the astounding things about the history of Alexander the Great is the speed with which he swept across the Middle East and Europe. I mean, it was historians to this day just marvel at the fact that a young man like him accomplished the military exploits that he did and that he accomplished them with such 
ferocity, ferocity, that he accomplished them with such speed and such anger. It's just an astounding thing. In fact, it's like a leopard with wings. In the Middle East, a leopard is a very fast animal. I mean, if you're running from a lion, okay. Lions have bursts of speed when they're hunting, but then they get tired and lay back down. That's what lions do. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you could outrun the lion. You could endure him. Leopards, no chance. Fastest thing in the Middle East, everybody's afraid of a leopard. How about a leopard with four wings on it? Okay, well, that's Alexander the Great. And then the vision jumps right through Rome by mentioning iron teeth and then suddenly ends up in these ten kingdoms again, these ten horns. Horns are a designation of power. And there are these ten powers that become these ten kingdoms. And then there's this little horn that rises up takes three of them by force. The other apparently just give him the authority, and he rules over the ten kingdoms. That has not happened yet in human history. How do I know that? Because it's during the time of those ten horns that Daniel says, yet again, that Christ comes back and establishes a kingdom that is never going to be conquered, in which the saints of God are going to rule along with Christ And unless you can show me where that's happened in human history, I have to conclude that this ten-toed kingdom doesn't exist yet. But it's going to. And it's going to be ruled over by a character who is alternately called the little horn, who rises up and says all these great boastful things about God, or alternately he's referred to as the beast. Now do you see why John can say that the two witnesses are going to be killed by the beast. Because anybody who knows the book of Daniel knows the beast. They know he's coming. They know the history of Israel. They know Babylon. They know Medo-Persia. They know Greece. They know their time in Rome. They know that this other kingdom is yet to come. Daniel 8, we're there. In Daniel 8... There is a description of a ram and a he-goat in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one that appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was at the citadel in Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal And then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from their power." But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal. And he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, his large horn was broken, 
and in his place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision of the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes this horror? so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. Anybody want to interpret that for us? No, you don't have to, because fortunately Daniel then gets the interpretation. Should I say again, when God tells you what the interpretation is, then pretty much is doing it. Okay, fine. Starting in verse 20. Well, starting in verse 15, it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of the man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out to me and said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. So this is the angel Gabriel, one of the few angels who's named by name. This is the same angel who shows up and talks to Mary, who talks to Elizabeth. This is the same one who announces the coming of Christ, who is now giving interpretation and understanding to Daniel. Verse 17, so he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. And and he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. There's a clue. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face on the ground, and he touched me, and he stood me upright, and he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, because it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw, which had two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. Well, that makes sense, because what Daniel saw was one of the horns, which came up later, grew larger than the other horn. That's exactly true. The king of Persia during the time of Persia's conquering, Cyrus, was named by Isaiah 150 years before he even became king of Persia. And why did God point him out by name? Because he was the king who allowed Israel to go back and rebuild the city and the temple. And God was so specific about 70 years in Babylon, and then they'll return and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. He was so specific that he even named the king that would put forward the decree to let that happen. 150 years in advance. Legend tells us that the Jews in Babylon actually showed Cyrus a copy of the book of Isaiah. Like, look, that's you. You're right there. That may have been part of the motivation for him to say, yeah, I better go along with this. And so the interpretation of the ram with the two horns is that Cyrus did come up later, but then he became more powerful than Darius, who was the king of the Medes. 
And then the Medes gave the power to Cyrus and the Persians, exactly the way the vision says. Verse 21, and the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And its large horn that is between its eyes is its first king, Alexander the Great. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, although not with his power. That is amazing, and I don't have time to really go into it in great detail, except to say history tells us that when Alexander died, he didn't have any posterity. He had a young son who was so young that he wasn't able to rule in his father's place. That son was later killed so that he wouldn't become the ruler in the area as a consequence. The four generals who had followed Alexander the Great became the rulers of Alexander's kingdom, which was divided into four sections. Later in the book of Daniel, we're not going to get into it this morning. If you want to hear it, go again to the archive section on the GCA website where I break down the king of the north and the king of the south. That's the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire it's the Middle East where, where Jerusalem is and the whole history of the back and forth battles and intermarriages and peace pacts that went on between them and the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. Those names, Seleucid and Ptolemy, come from the names of the generals of Alexander the Great when Alexander could no longer continue. By the way, Alexander died in his early 30s, apparently outside the gates of Babylon, weeping because there were no more worlds to conquer. What have you done in your silly little life? That's pretty amazing. The Bible argues that Alexander was able to do all that because he was driven by a demonic power. That demonic power is not right now. You see it in the book of Revelation. Is not right now. That's good news. And is to come. Oh, well, that's bad news. In fact, he's going to come in the person of the beast, in the person of the little horn. So as historians look at Alexander the Great and go, wow, that was astounding. How did he pull that off? You haven't seen the end of it. According to the Bible, it's coming again. The broken horn, says verse 22, and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, although not in his power. They're not going to have the same spiritual power driving them that Alexander had. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. Here we go again. Another description of this little horn, of this beast. This is why Daniel includes the king of the north and the king of the south and the history of the Middle East and, and sweeps over hundreds of years of Middle Eastern history and perfectly describes the relationships that go on between the Ptolemaic kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom. And at the end of all those kings, at the end of that succession that Daniel lays out, there's going to be one more, the beast, the horn. And he is described this way. A king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy in an extraordinary degree and prosper 
and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. And he will even oppose the prince of princes. Who's that? Jesus. He will oppose Jesus the same way we saw earlier. He's going to oppose the Son of Man. He's going to oppose Christ himself. But he will be broken without human agency. It's not going to be human beings who ultimately conquer him. He's going to be conquered. Why? Because Jesus himself is going to come back and mop up the floor with him. He will be broken, but without human agency. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted. I'll bet. And I was sick for days. Okay, just a couple other quick verses. Go to Daniel 11. I am rushing through the book of Daniel here. Daniel 11. I just want to look for a moment at verse, well, I want to go to 31, but first start at verse 21. Verse 21 says, In his place a despicable person will arise. That's another description of the beast, the little horn, a despicable person, on whom the honor of the kingship has not been conferred, but he's going to take it in a time of tranquility, and he's going to seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. This gives you some idea of the warfare that he is going to bring about. Look at verse 31 here. And forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary. Desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. And desecrate the sanctuary fortress. And do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Tom, if you would, look up Matthew 24, verse 15. Micah, if you would, look up Mark 13, verse 14. In both of those verses, which are parallel verses, Jesus is going to make reference to Daniel and the abomination of desolation. What's he referring to? This that we just read, that the little horn and his armies are going to be responsible for going into the temple and desecrating the temple in such a way that it is called abominable and it's going to make the temple desolate. It is the abomination of desolation. He's going to do something so bad that it's going to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we know from the book of Revelation that what he's going to do is set himself up in the temple, showing himself that he is God. And he's going to have a statue of himself erected there. But all Daniel knows about it is that it is something that he refers to as the abomination of desolation. They will set up the abomination of desolation. Tom's going to read Matthew 24, 15, if you would, Tom. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. Let those who are in Judea, very specific, let those who are in Judea 
flee to the mountains. Now, how are they going to know where in the mountains they're supposed to flee to? Jesus just told them. Book of Daniel. Go read Daniel. If you read Daniel, you'll find out where you're supposed to run to. In fact, here in Daniel 11, verse 41, we read that he, the little horn, as he's overflowing, going through the countries, conquering all these nations, he will also enter into the beautiful land. Where is that? What's the beautiful land? Israel. Israel. Many countries are going to fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. So Jesus was able to speak shorthand because he knew that the people he was speaking to knew the book of Daniel. So if you're from Judea and you know the book of Daniel, Jesus is talking to Jews in Jerusalem in Matthew 24. And he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then flee to the mountains. Where? Ammon, Moab, Edom. Just like Daniel says, those are the places that he can't get to. Uh, now Mike is going to read for us the same thing that Tom read. It's Mark 13, 14. Notice how often this is cited in the Gospels. It seems to be a very important detail. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, he's going to desecrate the temple. Now, the end of the book of Malachi, that's the end of the Old Testament. Then there is 400 years where God is essentially silent. And then Matthew starts with, there's a prophet, there's Jesus, there's John the Baptist. Suddenly, God is speaking again. God is prophesying again. But the Old Testament ends, and there's 400 years of God being silent. And in fact, there are no prophets in Israel during that period. And they write about it. They write extensively about the fact that they don't have prophets. Therefore, they don't know what to do in the temple. They don't know what to do with the furniture. They don't, they, nobody's telling them what to do for 400 years. That period is known as the intertestamental period. During that time, Israel's historians are still writing. And so there are books that are known as the intertestamental books. One of them is First and Second Maccabees. Judas Maccabee, his name means the hammer. During that period, there was an onslaught coming from Greece toward Israel, and so there was a group within Israel that held out and fought against them and hid in the mountains. And during that period, which you can read about in the Maccabees, the Maccabean Rebellion, read all that. And in fact, that bit of history is what leads to Hanukkah. Okay, the Maccabean Rebellion had to do with a fellow named Antiochus Epiphanes, not happy with just the name like Alexander the Great or his cousin Bob the Adequate. Instead, this one, Antiochus, decides to give himself the name Antiochus is God, Antiochus Epiphanes. You can read about that in First and Second Maccabees. Now, everybody who takes a historicist view to the book of Revelation and indeed to the whole Bible will tell you that this Antiochus Epiphanes is actually the fulfillment of what we just read in the book of Daniel. 
that he is the one who set up the abomination that makes desolate because he sacrificed a pig on the altar within the temple, which is history. He actually did do that. He desecrated the temple. And so he seems to be the most natural fulfillment. By the way, he is actually a direct descendant of the Seleucid Empire. So it makes complete sense that he would be the satisfaction and fulfillment of all this beast little horn language. Until Jesus walks on the planet and says, when you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about, which means it can't be Antiochus because he was before Jesus. And Jesus cast it out into the future. John is on the Isle of Patmos in the early 90s AD, and he's continuing to cast it out into the future. So i got to go with the biblical interpretation. I have to go with the futurist view because Jesus cast it out into the future. Does that make sense? Yes. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. I'm real close to done. I'm real close to done. 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. Paul is going to talk about this one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We went through this in some great detail when we were talking about the catching away of the church. But that's not the emphasis this morning. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. For some reason, we don't know what it is. The Thessalonians probably were just under so much conflict that they concluded that they were under the day of the Lord. It might also be that somebody wrote to them saying, this is the day of the Lord. This is that time of judgment from God. So the Thessalonian church was very concerned that they were in the day of the Lord. Paul is writing to them to say, no, you're not, because some things have to happen first before the day of the Lord. So he is correcting their error, and the way he's going to correct it is by talking about the beast. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord, will not come unless, the NASB says apostasy, if you want to hear the interpretation of that, it is also on the website, in the archives, under the um, topical messages. Go click on topical messages and scroll down to the Second Thessalonians teaching. Let no one deceive you in any way, for, for the day of the Lord has not come yet, because first there has to be an apostasy and the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. Okay, so that means that the man of lawlessness, the little horn, the beast, has to be on the planet before the day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord is God pouring out his wrath and then setting up the kingdom. Just like Daniel said, wait, I got more. He, the man of lawlessness, verse 4 says, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then Paul says, do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you this? So apparently while Paul was in Thessalonica, he told them all this. Where was he getting it? Daniel. 
He knows his Old Testament. He knows Ezekiel. He knows Zechariah, all of whom talk about this future establishment of a kingdom that comes after the man of sin, this man of lawlessness. By the way, I like the fact that Paul, while he was in Thessalonica, was perfectly willing to talk eschatology. Because you can go to a lot of places right now where they're scared to talk about eschatology. I don't have that fear because, well, Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. Okay, that was just a little personal aside from me to you. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what is restraining him now? In Paul's time, he says he was restrained. I'm arguing that he's still restrained because in the early 90s AD, John wrote about him as though he was still restrained. But he's coming, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. There's a very specific sovereign time when he's actually going to be revealed on the planet, and then he's going to last for how long? Time, times, and half a time. So we know three and a half years is what he gets once he is actually revealed. Why isn't he revealed yet? Because he's being restrained by God on purpose until the exact time that he's ready to reveal him on the planet. Wow, is that sovereign? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When he is ruling on the planet, the beast, the little horn, the man of lawlessness, when he is ruling on the planet over his ten-toed kingdom, his ten-horned kingdom, his ten-nation loose confederacy. When he's ruling, even Paul agrees with Daniel and with Jesus and with John in Revelation that while he is ruling, Jesus comes back. That's how I know he hasn't been to the planet yet. Because Jesus isn't here. Unless somebody wants to show me where Jesus is. But if you can't find him, the little horn hasn't come yet. In other words, cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, now he's going to describe him again, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, for the reason of turning particular people over to this wicked one, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Revelation, we're finally there. That means everything I've said so far this morning is introduction. and technically doesn't count against my time. I see the clock. I see it. I know. Revelation 11. All I have time to do now is just read it to you, but I want you to see how Revelation 11 ends, and then we will pick it up 
next week and go into more detail. Starting at verse 7, when they had finished, that's the two witnesses, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss, yes, of course, he's by the power of Satan, he's demonic. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Where is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem will lie in the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And they'll send gifts to one another because these two prophets who tormented those who dwell on the earth are finally dead. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the clouds, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Do you know what that means now? After Christ returns, mops up the floor with the little horn, the Antichrist, the beast, then the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord, exactly like Daniel said. When the ten-toed kingdom is here on the planet, when the beast is here on the planet, Christ is going to return Just like Paul said, Christ is going to slay him, destroy him with the breath of his mouth, and then set up his kingdom that will not be destroyed. That's the same thing we find here in the book of Revelation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty who art and who was, because thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. In other words, the reason I read all of that, the reason I read so much of Daniel this morning, the reason I read Paul, the reason that these two men read Jesus is because they're all saying the same thing. And when you have that amount of testimony, you don't get a different opinion. When you have that much biblical, clear, God-interpreting evidence, all you can say is, there is a kingdom coming that isn't here yet. It is going to be ruled over by a, a man who understands dark sentences. 
a man who is going to show himself that he is God. He's going to desire all the worship. He's going to rule for three and a half years. And it is during his reign and the reign of those ten kingdoms that Jesus Christ himself comes back to the planet. That hasn't happened yet. Therefore, we have to look forward to it in the future. And when Jesus comes back, you'll notice in the book of Revelation that heaven breaks out in worship to God because God is doing exactly what God has always said he was going to do. He judges the earth. He rewards those who are his. And he sets up an everlasting kingdom to the glory of his son. That's what the Bible says. That's what I believe. Got it? Got it. I would ask if there were questions, but I got to get out of here. So. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.